Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Wow. Well, listen, we find ourselves in a strange position here because we... Not for the first time. We are recording this before the England-Sweden game. Yeah. So we have no idea how that is going yeah. to pan out. And this this podcast will be published at the beginning of, of the following yeah. week. So people who, you know, the, the the significant, I imagine, portion of the audience who are following the football, they're, they're going to be feeling emotional one way or the other. So I thought maybe we could record two reactions and two then, versions yeah like, exactly. like boris johnson and the brexit referendum when he was trying to decide whether to be in favor or against <laughs> exactly like that yes except we'll, we'll publish both yeah okay let's go yeah. i'm incredibly excited they're in the semi-finals <laughs> um you know wednesday night is gonna be just amazing um you're gonna be going out to a restaurant because yeah. you want to avoid the Football. The f- football but i mean no you don't want to avoid the football you want to take advantage of yeah. everybody else watching the football but Ed, even it- are you not going to be are you not going to be taken in a bit by it i can't imagine that i mean it's possible but if, it, if they're know. in the final we'll come to the final in, <laughs> in due course, in due course. Yeah, yeah uh but you, you will watch the final well we're going to choose to be at latitude to get that and that is going to be complicated <laughs> uh because the second half of our latitude is currently scheduled for the first half of the england game which is a no-no as far as i'm concerned if they get to the final which they we don't but know let, yet let's have. not jump the gun okay. but for the time being reaction number one ed is feeling yeah. jubilant really He's happy. not wearing a shirt at the moment but he yeah. has painted a flag yeah, yeah. Uh, across his pasty chest uh it's it's a, it's a wonderful thing you're in great high spirits okay so that's that's number yeah. one reaction number okay. one so ready for reaction number two ed i'm pretty gutted really yeah i mean i i am gutted but e- e- even though they're out i think they vanquished the ghosts in terms of penalties first ever win by england in a world cup match on penalties so welcome to this week's episode. I wanted to start by saying how excited we are about the Edinburgh Fringe Festival next month. We are excited. We're playing the first weekend on the 4th and 5th of August. Uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be loud. It's going to be proud. It's going to be funny. It's going to be out there. Yeah, and we're going we're on at the Pleasance Grand. Uh, I think it's four o'clock in the afternoon on both the Saturday and the Sunday. And if you've never been to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, I mean, it's just that the whole city uh, is alive, alive and buzzing and every possible space. And we'll have is comedy and serious. Yeah, and... it's, it's going to be great. So we would love you. And where do on. people go and find tickets? So if you go to the Edinburgh Fringe website, you'll, you'll find us on there. But to make it easy for you, we'll also put the link into the notes on this programme. So, But if you just Google uh, Ed's name, my name, We might also Edinburgh tweet Fringe, a link to we, it as we well. We will definitely do. So please do come and see us at the Edinburgh please, Fringe Festival. Please, Do. I mean, it'd be embarrassing please. if nobody did, wouldn't Indeed. it? Indeed. Yeah. So uh, please come along to us at the Pleasance Grand. Definitely. So on to this week's episode then. Yes, we're talking tech, but I suppose we're doing a bit of a rebalancing because in previous episodes we've warned about some of the dangers for kids of tech. We've talked about some of the issues around these big monopoly or oligopoly providers, the Googles and the Amazons and all that. 
this week we're talking about you know what can tech do for us what you know how can we democratize tech what are the great examples from around the world and we're really sort of covering the the gamut here we've got uh, the example from barcelona where there's really interesting stuff being done on how you make tech really work for the benefit of people in barcelona not just public wi-fi but all kinds of other initiatives uh, we've got somebody talking about what's happening in parts of new york and the united states on the same theme and then we're bringing it all together by thinking thinking well look, where do we take this if, if we're worried about the you know these big these big tech giants you know how can we make tech a force for good i think it's very exciting if Definitely. you think about the amount of data that is generated i thought you were going to say if you think about the amount of time you spend on twitter then you know <laughs> well we i'm, I'm, I'm generating a lot of data yeah, with the exactly. amount of time i spend on let's twitter, put it to good use yeah, and it's absolutely and, you know, it sometimes goes under the kind of rather misleading and broad category smart cities but that, that's the general theme and in addition to that to pitch some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful we are joined by a brilliant comedian she's a, a great comic um uh, a great comic character actor and multi-award winning podcaster you're going to have to keep your jealousy under control about all the awards yeah. she has. Uh, her podcast is Griefcast, and we're joined by the brilliant Carrie Adloyd. Yeah, she knows she's great. What's your reason to be cheerful? Um, mine, mine this week, I was just going to suggest a, a, a couple of things to listen to that I've yeah. enjoyed recently, other than this podcast. The first one is a podcast. It's really funny. It's comedy. It's by uh, Julia Davis, who people might know from an amazing sitcom from about 10 years ago called Nighty Night and a more recent show on Sky called Camping and a very funny other comic actor called Vicky Pepperdine. And they are basically playing um, two older ladies giving advice. And it's deeply inappropriate uh but deeply funny if you're easily offended it's perhaps not for you but if um why easily offended no i don't i think i think you might no. do all right with it it's, it's exceptionally funny and then the other thing i was going to recommend is that a friend of mine made a documentary for radio four and you know i often listen to these things out of politeness you know like i listen to this podcast every now and again and um it's a guy called Nick Duncalf, and it went out on Radio 4. It's a documentary about the theatre director, Robert Lepage, and it was so, so good. So Nick went behind the scenes of his most recent production, his, his newest production, and um, it was a great 45 minutes of radio. So you'll be able to find that on the BBC iPlayer. So that's that one, and the other one is called Dear Joan and Jerrica. Those are my recommendations and my reasons to be cheerful. What's your reason to be cheerful? Mine is that somebody... Uh, this week mistook me for a, I think, a presenter on CBeebies. Wow, because David Cameron was mistaken for Iggle Piggle from In the Night Garden on a number of occasions. Was he? Well, I think people, you oh, know, said he, lo he looks like him. So who did you get mistaken? Well, I don't know. I just got stopped by somebody who said, hang on a minute, you're on CBeebies, aren't you? But you know what that means, <laughs> Jeff? That means that I look very young. Borderline millennial, don't you? Well, I, I mean, you, you've got to be borderline millennial. I to don't be, know. Um, there's, there's Mr. Tumble. Maybe, maybe he had an error. They might have me for Mr. Tumble. <laughs> Were you wearing full my, clown makeup my, at the time? My, you were disguised as a clown. My ego has just been burst. <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're joined now by Francesca Bria, who's Chief Technology Officer and Digital Commissioner in Barcelona. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi. Hello. So... Barcelona is being um, heralded as a place that is at the forefront of urban technological innovation. C can you tell us what are the main things you're doing in Barcelona, which you think are making that reputation? So in Barcelona, uh, we are rethinking the smart city from the bottom up. So I was nominated by our mayor, Ada Colau, uh, over two years ago to come to Barcelona and completely rethink the model of a digital city. That instead of starting from a technology push, instead of starting from putting sensor network, uh, connectivity, data, we start from what kind of big social and urban challenges we are trying to solve, and in particular from citizen needs. So we say that the digital revolution has to be coupled with the democratic revolution Evolution. This means that we really want to shape technology that can serve the people. So one of the big experiments that we are running in Barcelona uh, is about participatory democracy. So we are starting from real citizen needs. Uh, we are running um, 11 participatory processes in parallel at the moment in Barcelona 
And this participatory democracy uh, experiments allow people to decide about very concrete issues like the new transportation plan, uh, about new uses of cultural spaces, about issues that matter to them regarding air quality, energy uh, policy of the city. And then we uh, basically filter the uh, proposal and all the deliberation that happens on our DECIDIM uh, platform. It's an online platform that we use to do that. It is actually a hybrid between uh, online democracy and offline democracy because we consult citizens in the streets, in the squares of Barcelona through large processes of deliberation. And then we integrate this uh, citizen-led proposal into the decision-making process of the city. So we can say that today, the city government agenda of Barcelona, over 70% of the action plan that we run in the city uh, come from citizens themselves. So this is the starting point. How do we make sure that we start from citizen needs and we tackle the real urban challenges that we have in cities about affordable housing, about energy transition, about the fight against climate change. And only after we ask, what kind of technology do we need to empower us to get there? And how do we govern this technology? So I would say what makes uh, the Barcelona Smart City special is this focus from making it from the bottom up, building it together with citizens and make that a priority. How big a part does data play, the, the data that is collected in the running of the city to identify areas where technology and digital thinking can, can make a difference? So many people say uh, that data is the raw material of the digital uh, economy and the digital world. Cities uh, today collect over 90% of the data that didn't exist three years ago. So there is an exponential growth on the type of data that we collect coming from urban sensors, coming from devices, coming from citizens themselves. And of course, there the question is, who own this data and how we can make sure that we use this data for the common good, for the public good. So we believe that data is a public infrastructure. It is a meta utility that will enable, in particular with the coming uh, of artificial intelligence, machine learning as a key enabler technology of our time, the transition uh, to the internet of things, to the smart city uh, kind of world. Uh, this makes uh, data uh, absolutely absolutely a critical uh, infrastructure of the city. And we want to shift the control uh, of this data to citizens. So also in this respect, we want to devolve uh, power back to the citizens to make sure that they are the one that can decide what data they want to keep private, what data they want to share, with whom and on what terms. So actually we want to invert the question of terms and condition. As we know now, uh, the data market is very concentrated. We are in front of an unprecedented market power in the hands of few technology giants that aggregate, um, mine, analyze, and use this data for uh, to train artificial intelligence models. Uh, this also has risks of uh, well monopoly, but also uh, in cities it's very clear that this concentration of power uh, can have risks in the in the way that new platforms that could potentially be innovative and disrupt um, incumbents and all the business model can also present uh, a very uh, risky outcomes, I mean, on the manipulation of data, for instance, like we saw in the electoral cases with Cambridge Analytica on Facebook, but also can present other challenges to cities, like in the case of the sharing economy platforms like Uber or Airbnb, where for cities is becoming very hard to regulate these platforms, make sure that they obey to local rules, that they pay taxes and they respect workers and citizens' rights and standards. So by democratizing data, and shifting uh, the power over the control and the ownership of data to citizens so that they can set the terms of use for this data, 
uh, we really want to create a kind of new data commons. That's how we call it, a city data commons, on top of which we can unleash all the talent and the power that we have across Europe with uh, uh, new startups, cooperatives, the local industry that will be able uh, to access this data on fair, ethical terms with ethical digital standards, and on top of this data, built the future data-driven services in health, transportation, education, and urban services uh, that will basically shape uh, our digital world. And look, there's lots to get our teeth into in this. Let me start with this consultation thing. You know, in Britain anyway, people are quite sort of sceptical and fatigued by consultation because they often think the politicians, sometimes it's been me, uh, have decided before they do the consultation. Tell us about how this consultation is making a difference, you think, how it's working using online tools and how it can really make a difference. First of all, we are not talking only about consultation. This is a new form of democracy. We call it participatory democracy. It involves deliberation. It involves decisions. It involves participatory budgeting. It involves also consultation. So it's a more um, complex, yeah. let's say, uh, deliberation process that we are uh, putting yeah. in in Barcelona. Uh, also, um, we are trying to respond to a very big challenge that we see today, which is the lack of trust that citizens have vis-a-vis current political institutions. It's true here as well. Yes, that led to some of the kind of crisis of legitimacy of representative democracy. And, and also, of course, vis-a-vis uh, -vis financial institutions when it, when it comes to the financial crisis. So we are uh, preventing that that people are disenfranchised, they don't trust anymore this, the current political institution. And we are proposing a change which implies that we can uh, only resolve this uh, lack of trust and this kind of um, uh, crisis uh, of legitimacy, uh, proposing a genuinely participatory democracy that leverage all the digital tools uh, that we have today uh, to, to make this possible. In order to do this, we also have to really take seriously uh, the question of transforming the relationship between citizens and political institutions. Uh, government have to become more open, more participatory, more collaborative, and really more uh, open to integrate the collective intelligence of citizens into the policymaking and the decision-making process. I think that only taking this very seriously at the very heart of our um, the running of our political institution, we can prevent that the lack of trust and disenfranchisement uh, goes into the kind of right-wing populism that we're seeing today in Europe and globally. And I think experimentally, generally democratic uh, participatory uh, approaches can be an alternative to that. Francesca, thank you so much for joining us. And it has really been great to hear about what you're doing in Barcelona. Thank you very much for having me. We're now joined by Greta Byram, who is co-director of the Digital Equity Laboratory at the New School, who have been involved in the Red Hook initiative. Greta, hello. Thanks for joining us. Hi, how are you? Uh, we're doing well over here. Um, I wondered if I could begin by asking you to tell us about the work that you've been involved in, which utilises technology to improve local services within Red Hook in Brooklyn. So if you tell us a bit about the area and the work you've been doing. Red Hook um, is an interesting part of New York. I think people love it for its kind of um, seafaring charm, but it's also, uh, you know, got a, a lot of sort of social and economic um, deprivation. So it's a community that's um, cut off from the rest of the city for the most part by transportation. So that means um, there's no subway line that actually goes to Red Hook, um, which is unusual for New York, where most neighborhoods you can walk easily to a subway station. So it's an interesting mixture. Um, but in general, especially in the poorer parts of the neighborhood, um, has had very low broadband availability and adoption rates historically. So, and, and you have been involved with something there called the Red Hook Community Mesh Wireless Initiative. Yeah, Red Hook Wi-Fi. So um, we originally started working with folks in Detroit um, in around 2010. Um, and we were helping folks there build their own Wi-Fi um, networks because Detroit had 
such low rates of availability of, of broadband. So nobody could get on the internet in Detroit. Either the infrastructure wasn't there or it was priced out of reach. And so when we started working there, it was only a little more than a third of folks actually had internet. Um, so we were helping folks in Detroit build Wi-Fi networks. And as part of that, we developed um, a training curriculum, which um, allowed people to come to the table as um, builders of technology who are not traditionally technologists. So these are people who um, often have seen technology as a force of even of oppression and displacement in their neighborhoods. So big tech comes in, um, people get displaced, they can't afford to live in their neighborhoods anymore. So we tried something different in Detroit and folks really thrived and learned and built with what we were doing there. And then that's when the Red Hook Initiative came to us and um, asked us uh, to work with them to bring the digital stewardship curriculum to Red Hook and help them build a network there. And how has it turned out? So the Red Hook Network um, is, is great. <laughs> it's amazing. It was a very sort of shoestring operation to begin with. Uh, when we started, you know, the, there were really just a few trainees and a couple of folks that were helping them build. And um, they built maybe like eight um, network sites. So eight nodes uh, is, what, is what it's called in sort of networking language. Nodes are kind of points of presence of the network. Um, so those were eight rooftops where, where the stewards put um, equipment. And it was a really small-scale effort. Um, but then when Hurricane Sandy hit, um, there's a kind of paradox of big infrastructure that um, if it's fragile in any place, then the, the sort of um, breakages start to compound and you get something called cascading network failure, which is what happened. That was 2012, Sandy, uh, Hurricane Sandy, yeah? Hurricane Sandy, yeah. yeah. So in 2012, basically... The, uh, the big networks in Red Hook all failed. So cell phone networks were down. Most internet networks were down. But this funny little kind of rubber band and shoestring mesh network was still running. Um, and that's because, you know, it, it's hardy. It's sort of DIY. People could get up there and fix stuff as it broke. Um, and it was really actually designed to be resilient and, and kind of bounce back. If we were in uh, Red Hook today, how would it look different from a, an, another place served just by conventional, private, you know, big corporate Wi-Fi? It's quite different, and it's not actually replacing the big, the big networks. Like this is not a system that um, you know the folks in the neighborhood would rely on for um, everyday sort of getting on the internet, broadband connection, right? Um, this is this is essentially like a resilient network that kind of um, piggybacks or it um, it's redundant, which is sort of a principle of resiliency. So it's there um, as a public network to help people um, in the case of an emergency and also to help people get online who um, might not have access to the Internet otherwise. Um, so one thing to note is that lots of people in the U.S. I'm not so sure what it's like in the UK, but if you can't afford unlimited data on your cell phone, and most people, a lot of people that are low income are, are sort of smartphone dependent, meaning they don't use computers, but rather yeah. mobile devices, um, they need to supplement their data plans. Yeah. So that's another thing that this network is really important for in Red Hook. Apart from the direct benefits to low income people of this, what else does it achieve, this Red Hook network? Because it, it doesn't stop there, does it? In terms of practical applications, um, we have, you know, the, the Red Hook Jobs Board, which is this local resource, is incredibly useful for folks there. Um, people have talked in different neighborhoods where we're working um, about wanting to set up something like um, local data gathering for things like police activity. So rather than sort of expecting that the city will collect all the relevant data on how people interact with police. The communities also want to, want to collect some of that data. Um, we also see, for example, in the South Bronx, which is one of the most polluted zip codes in the country with um, 
the highest rate of asthma, I think, in North America, potentially. Um, but in, in Hunts Point in the South Bronx, people want to install air sensors on that mesh network so that they can really understand the relationship to, you know, traffic patterns on the highway there and how that increases um, particulate in the in the air and things like that. So we see a range of local uses that people are just now exploring. Um, and the Red Hook network is probably the furthest along because it's been in development since um, about 2011. Let me ask you about your work more widely of the Digital Equity Laboratory. There's a debate on both sides of the Atlantic about Facebook and Google and you know, lots of people feel that the wool has been a little bit pulled over their eyes in terms of what these companies were actually doing. And I think people are much more interested in alternatives. What would you point us to, which is, which conforms to the title of this podcast, Reasons to be Cheerful? What are the, what are the <laughs> ways in which tech is being used for, for kind of good purposes and, and in the most promising ways, would you say? What are you most inspired by in your work in terms of, I mean, obviously Red Hook is an inspiring story, but yeah. where else do you, you know, what are the other examples that you'd point to that are sort of inspiring kind of different ways forward, if you like? Where I'm most hopeful is in places where people who have been traditionally oppressed um, or marginalized are are saying, okay, let's take this tool and actually make something that serves us and that, um, you know, has a vision for technology that's something beyond, you know, the bottom line that really has to do with building the community, with providing opportunities for people. So I look at projects like Our Data Bodies, which is a research project that bridges um, Los Angeles, Detroit, and Charlotte, North Carolina, where people are thinking about how do we rebuild technology? How do we deal with the issues that have arisen with kind of the uh, monopoly power of big tech. Um, I look at projects like Opening Data, also coming out of Detroit, um, which teaches people how to use use data, open data to improve their communities. So I would say in every case, the things that make me the most um, hopeful are places where people are using technology to achieve, you know, their vision and to meet their values rather than places where technology is determining um, what a vision of a place is going to look like or what kinds of values are going to be embedded in the systems that we use. Greta, thank you so much for telling us about your work. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm delighted to say that in Jeff's Loft, we're now joined by Adam Greenfield, who's a leading expert on the relationship between technology and the urban experience and founder of something called Urban Scale. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. That's my pleasure to be here. So you're the guy who's going to help us navigate through the thicket, the technology thicket for the for the thickies, me and Jeff, uh, who don't kind of can't get our heads around some of this. Some people talk about this term smart cities, but it's really about how technology can be used for kind of positive purposes in in geographical areas just just trying to help us navigate some sure. signposts in this sure i think the first thing to to mention is i never use this language of the smart city i think it's it's uh, misdirection and getting off of the wrong foot. right and the reason why is that there's no agreed definition of a smart city nobody can tell you what it means it's essentially jargon mm. um and the the only interesting thing about it is nobody's going to claim to be a stupid city, are they? No, that's right. Um, it's it's sort of um, it, it's getting us off on the wrong foot to even right. discuss that. I think when we do discuss positive uses of technology in urban space, in public space, in in everyday urban life, um, the question always has to be positive for whom. There's always, always a trade-off involved in deploying these technologies. There's always an investment involved, and some people benefit directly from that investment. And then it is entirely possible that some public good will be created out of the deployment of a given technology in public space. But always at some cost. Um, is it that the cost is borne, you know, uh, by the public purse? Or is the cost borne in terms of limitations to privacy or people's ability to act? Is the cost borne in some uh, less easy to discern way that only shows up down the road? All the information is going to Uber and, sure. uh, you know, whatever. Sure. I mean, you know, I think that's a great example where, um, you know, TFL uh, generates uh, an enormous amount of information from the ridership, from from the ordinary working people of the city who, who take TFL services day in, day out. They generate value 
in that data. And then the value in that data is captured by a private organization and it's kind of ducted off. It's drawn away from the how, public How sphere. has that happened? Because TFL will, will has a, a license that offers this data to uh, anybody who comes. It's an open data platform, uh, right. right? And then private organizations can take that and leverage it in ways that ordinary citizens can't. This is, is the, the crux of the difficulty that we're up against is that when we're, whenever we talk about open data or open platforms, um, you're, you're basically offering information to the wider field of organizations that are out there to take use of it, right? Um, The ordinary person is not going to be able to leverage the value in that information, even collectively, because there are a wide variety of private organizations that are already chartered and staffed up and inclined and able to capture the value in that right away. And again, um, I guess what gives me heartburn about that is the notion that people are not being included in the goods that their own activities generate. It is true, right, that you can collect data about people and mine that data for inference and knowledge and, and learn about the city and, and uh, determine effective points of intervention for policy and, and for all sorts of things, you know, where to put a bus stop. Um, but it, it tends to not to be the case right now that that benefit is shared back with the people who generate it. I mean, uh, isn't one of the reasons why what's happening in Barcelona, what's happening in parts of New York and the United States, why it's speaking to people is people are really anxious for good reasons about Facebook, Google, Amazon, all these companies that seem to have enormous power. And the city is being seen as one vehicle by which to fight back. That's a decent premise, yeah? It's a gorgeous premise. I wish it were the case. I'd love to see that happening. How should it happen? I mean, if you were, we've got this thing called the Jeffocracy, which we're introducing rather early in this interview, uh, which is Jeff being the supreme but benign ruler. Uh-huh. If, if Jeff were to make you his sort of technology guru, yeah. which I think is quite possible. That's awesome. Uh, what I'm, would I'm you, all for it. How should cities be fighting back? Oh, goodness. Uh, early childhood education. Um, I would get out into the communities and first I would uh, assess what people, uh, what their perceptions are of the world that they live in. And I would begin gently and respectfully educating people about all the ways in which they brush up against data collecting services and information technologies. And I think what you'd find is that when you too do speak to people in their own language and, and with respect to their own perspectives, um, they're pretty canny about the ways in which these services kind of abrade their ability to act. Their worries are not without, you know... Just not worried, though. I'm not... I, I feel that this data could just be a massive force for good, you know, if you think about... You don't we, really care about Google and Facebook and everybody I, collecting I don't, your data. I know it's an unfashionable view, and I do realise that. I I only think that because I'm in the position of privilege. There you go. And my, da- was, yeah, yeah. my data is less perilous, perhaps, than it's, but, but other But what about the data? opportunity but cost? This, this I mean, there I, is an opportunity cost, even if you is, think it's is, not oh being... Oh, my God, thank you. Yeah, this even is, if it's not doing, you know, invading your privacy in a way yeah. you don't like, yeah. think what good it could be used for. That, that's what I think. But to me, the, the precise question is opportunity cost. It's that there are things that we could be doing that are less glamorous, that are less flashy, that are less capital-intensive, um, that don't wind up involving taking meetings with big tech vendors that actually wind up doing more good. So, for example, you know, in, in, if you're talking about predictive policing, there are all kinds of vendors who are going to come and sell you packages that will say, oh, we'll put the Met on a crime scene in four minutes or less because, you know, we've anticipated where the crimes are going to happen. Um, but the opportunity cost of that investment when compared to something like a summer jobs program or even a school meals program, if, if you know, it depends on what you're trying to do. If, if you're trying to reduce crime, maybe there are more efficient ways to reduce crime that have very little to do with information technology. But weren't a lot of these things done anyway are using less sophisticated methods of data oh, collection? Know, you know that and now not. we've got... You know that they're not. They're not. We're not investing in those things anymore. But we should do those things. But we should also use data for good purposes. No. It, so it, there's an order of priority to me, right? We should absolutely use every tool. We should use every arrow yeah. in our quiver. We should use every tool yeah. in our kit. Pick your metaphor. Um, but we should do the basic, you know, solid, efficacious things first. We know those things are effective, and they're enormously cost-effective. It's just they're not sexy, so nobody wants to do them. Um, if we do those things first, then yes, then we can begin to layer data and, and data inquiry-based uh, policy on top of but that. But let's go through some things that have sort of come up in previous interviews, some of which you heard, some of which you didn't. Yeah. Pu- I mean, 
public Wi-Fi yep. so that it's not just those who can afford it. Gimme. I mean, we should cable do that, stakes. shouldn't we? Absolutely. I mean, every stakes. city should be doing that. Every city should be doing that, but bear in mind what happened in New York. when. So you know these little uh, BT in-link kiosks that have been showing up all over the place in London? Mm-hmm. They are um, a second-generation public informational kiosk. They rolled them out in New York first. They're called NYC CityLink. Um, they are public Wi-Fi spots. They're open. It, what happened when they were first deployed in New York, which really should have surprised nobody, which is that homeless guys would hang out in front of them and stream porn on them, right? right? And if you're willing to accept that people are going to use open Wi-Fi for what people use open Wi-Fi for and do so or in public. closed Wi-Fi, yeah. Yeah, right? I mean, you know, connectivity yeah. is connectivity. And if you're willing to accept that, that human beings have an absolute right to connectivity as sort of a sine qua non of, of, of contemporary life, and, and you think that that service ought to be provided equally to all citizens, then you should be willing to shoulder the consequences. And personally, I am, but, you know, maybe people will be happy to know that I'm not a policymaker. Isn't it a way of, if there's 30% of people in a city who can't afford uh, broadband or wireless subscription that is a way to connect those people absolutely up it is porn a- or not porn absolutely you know what I mean? it is absolutely it is and it's as it doesn't far need as to I'm be done in public no it's a matter of public right as far as i'm concerned like you know th- there's an example in my book um yeah i wrote a book last year called radical technologies and I, I i talk about refugees showing up you know on the shores of the mediterranean and literally asking for a smartphone before they they ask for a, a mylar blanket or a food bar you know or or a drink of water connectivity is so important to who we are and who we understand ourselves to be and our, our ability to act in the world absolutely how else could we be collecting data so that it's not just the ubers and the whoever else is who are doing it for private gain yep. but do, you're doing it for public gain oh i think it would be fantastic to have you know every tfl bus have a little sensor package slapped onto the side of it gathering air quality data. not just air quality though presumably yeah. there must be other things Absolutely as well there are. yeah i mean the the thing is though that we get we get caught up in the mystification of measurement. Measurement is again, it's it's both necessary, but it's very um, it's very sexy to a certain kind, cer- certain cast of mind. You know, people like to say that we can point at the facts and the figures. Um, unless that becomes a trigger for effective policy, then it's just wanking, and it's it's number wanking. You mean number wanking? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's number wank. What about? And this, there must be promise in this of using um people's using interactivity mm-hmm. to 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 find better ways of talking to the citizen this is the crux of red hook and this is really what i came here to say um i think the value in working with citizens and technology is in demystifying and if you'll forgive a very old-fashioned word empowering people the the value of what's happening in red hook and in detroit and in other places where they're working with the, the mesh networks um is that people are teaching each other how these things work and how to work with them, how to deploy them themselves, and how to do so in a way that generates real value in their lives by their terms. And what happens when somebody works with this is that they develop uh, what the psychologists always used to call an internal locus of control, right? The world is no longer quite something that happens to you. It's now something that you can take action in. Um, technology itself becomes a, a demystified terrain. You, you're not you're not intimidated by by people who call themselves experts. You're not um, you know nobody can blow smoke in your orifices you know with uh, jargon and, and various. And where's yeah. that being done well? Well, I think Red Hook is an amazing example. I think Detroit is an amazing example. You've been lucky enough this afternoon, I understand, to speak with Greta Byron. Yeah. She's doing fantastic stuff, and the people that she's working with are doing incredible things. What's the thing about Red Hook that you would pick out? It, what I love is an example that I always use. It's an image that I use in my in my um, presentations of just you know ordinary Brooklyn people working on a rooftop, deploying um, a a method of, com- of connecting to the internet that means that that community cannot be cut off from the internet effectively. So it's not it's not the Virgin Internet, it's not the BT Internet, it's their internet, and nobody's going to be able to get in the way of them having access to it to do what they will with it. So there's the value at that level, as you mm-hmm. say, connectivity mm-hmm. is, is an absolute, you know, non-negotiable, yeah. right? But there's also the fact that, that they now understand a little bit about network topographies and how to connect things to one another in a way that can't easily be censored. Um, it's politically efficacious, if you will, on a couple of different levels. It's psychologically efficacious. And I, I think that there's, there's an aspect of, um, something pretty profoundly moral about it, which is that we're giving tools back to people to allow them to have a stake in their own world in a way that, that 
very, very few policies around technology often do. That's why I'm so excited by this work. And it's why, frankly, I'm so saddened that it's still the best example that we're still talking about eight or 10 years down the But line. am I right in thinking that Bristol is trying to yeah. do some of this? Yeah. Um, what's called the Bristol approach to networked information technology is also pretty exciting. Uh, I met a woman named Mara Balestrini a couple of years ago at one of these conferences that we all seem to run into one another at. And she... Uh, we don't get invited to the conferences. Oh, please. <laughs> But, uh, you know, she, she gave an amazing presentation on, um, a community led approach to sensing and, and the use of data in, in civic, uh, policymaking. I, I think the issue there was rising damp in houses. And I think this is what I, I love about this example is that, you know, for an American, for a New Yorker coming here, you know, rising damp, it's not even on my radar, right? It's not something that you ever think of. But if you go to talk to people in some of the neighborhoods that she was working in in Bristol, um, you know, guess what? This is, this is a major impact on their quality of life. It's something that, you know, I guess black mold starts to grow in their houses. It's, it's a health yeah, hazard. It's a big problem. It's a big problem. Um, and it's not anything that the technology vendors would have come in and say, well, we're going to build damp sensors into your urban, you know, into your smart urban operation. But it can be done. It, it absolutely can be done. Um, but you need to take the lead of the people in the community who are at the coal phase, as it were. They will tell you what their problems are. My favorite thing about these deployments of technology in urban communities is that they're a pretext to have a conversation with the people who live in a place about what frictions they're struggling with. Um, air quality, as it happens, is a real issue for Londoners right now. Um, and the more we talk about distributed sensing and citizen science, maybe the angrier people get and maybe the more they're going to push for some action on it. That's a great thing. And if, if seriously, if a, if a couple of thousand pounds worth of distributed sensors get us that, then I am all for it. But let's be clear that it's a means to an end and not the end in itself. So broadly speaking, we're getting too excited uh, about measuring things when those resources could be better used elsewhere. And the, the thing to be excited about is is the stuff that comes from the people on the ground, right? That's one thing. I, I, the other thing is that we're finally starting to acquire some of the necessary sophistication to have these discussions. Uh, you know, it's a wonderful thing for people to realize that, that you know, the, the tech vendors don't necessarily have our best interests in mind. It's a wonderful thing for people to start being skeptical about the, the benisons that they're being offered. Um, it doesn't mean you throw out the baby with the bathwater. It just means you start asking more sophisticated questions and you start pushing back on the propositions that you're being offered. And what I see, you know, I, I'm like a bee. I, I fly around my pollinate, right? And what I see when I go from place to place is that policymakers, legislators, regulators, um, A, the, the arrogance of the Silicon Valley kids coming in there has pretty much permanently put them off. Uh, but B, they're, they're learning to ask the right questions. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way. This is a complicated. Realism. There's real, there's sort of realism about what is the proportionality. advantages and disadvantages. Absolutely. And how, and the public policy isn't sort of suspended and, and sort of cast to one side because it's all going to be a sort of utopia. That's right. I mean, I think we've, we've frankly probably killed the smart city dead. We've put a stake through its heart in the last couple of years. And that means that we can finally begin to talk about ways in which we might use technology for public benefit. And your reason to be cheerful would be that we're, we're having the, those conversations. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that a beautiful thing? I mean, the, the, I'm the, stoked. Yeah, the, the sort of the, the kind of first step in solving a problem is realizing you've got one. Yeah, there you go. So, so you know, maybe we've hit bottom the last couple of years of the smart city rhetoric, and maybe we're we're now finally in a place where we can start having some some realistic, meaningful, value derived, you know, value generating conversations. I think it's a fantastic time. It's it has never been easier to make the point that that technology is not something that needs to be a mystery. Uh, it just takes a little bit of effort. It takes a little bit of, you know, you got to talk to the right people, but it's, it's something that is a domain of public action and it ought to be. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Radical Technologies now out in paperback. Go and buy it. Awesome. Thanks. So what do you think? Well, I know when we started this discussion, it was supposed to be a little bit of a counterpoint to previous episodes being so down on tech. And I don't know, listening to the examples both Greta and Francesca gave, I, I did feel sort of positive about the way that technology can be used in cities. And then maybe Adam put a bit of a downer on it saying, is it the best way to, to um, use resources? And also, you know, back to the old thing about can those big tech companies be trusted with our data 
I think we're sort of in the area of baby steps, aren't we? Or sort of, you know, it's what he said at the end, which is, you know, at least we've recognised the issue and we're now having the conversation. And there are some great examples, you know, Barcelona, parts of New York and so on. And we've sort of got to build on them. I, I sort of feel like we're in, you know, public policy on the welfare state, like before 1945, you know what I mean? And so it's, it's sort of or even you know even before in the sort of 19th century yeah, you know, yeah, we're, yeah. we're sort of so in a way it's not surprising that it feels slightly frustrating and slightly a thicket and well, i suppose if to... you think how, how long all that stuff came after the exactly. industrial revolution exactly. here we are in the digital revolution yeah. which is probably historically going to be seen as an even bigger thing so when we're doing this podcast in 2078 <laughs> No, but I think I think since everything goes quicker, we can we can make progress quickly. But but you know I think it's important to recognise where we're starting from. Email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at cheerful podcast, or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to Be Cheerful Podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And here to pitch some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we have comedian, actor, and podcaster Carrie Ad Lloyd. Hello. Hello. I would say podcast royalty. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm surprised that you can even be in the same room as Carrie Ad because you're so consumed. I'm surprised she's willing so to be in the same room as us, actually. <laughs> Ed is so yeah. consumed with envy for the amount of yeah. awards that Carrie Ad has. Well, she won the bestest of the bestest of the bestest mm. podcast. Yeah, recently. we need to recall it that. It was podcast of the year. Podcast of I the want year. it to be called the Ed Miliband Bestest of the Best of the well, Bestest Award. You can have that. You Speak can have to the that. British Podcast Awards. De- definitely, so honestly. Griefcast. Yeah, Griefcast. So it won Best Entertainment, Best Interview and Podcast of the Year. But it didn't... All right, all right. It didn't beat your category. What category were you in? Oh, I don't know. We got wrong in so look, honestly. But no, I, I think it. it's very, very well deserved. So say a little bit about it for those of you who haven't heard it. Um, so Griefcast is a show that I created and I host, and it's where I interview comedians and funny people about their experiences of grief and death. And it's cheerier than it sounds. Is it only funny people that you interview? Um, I think the kind of ethos behind the show is it's people kind of, I guess, who work sort of in my industry. So it's not, I don't necessarily have to be, you don't have to be a stand-up comedian. So I've spoken to like script writers or novelists or producers, but you basically have to have a sense of you have spoken about it in a way rather mm. than like, this is the first time I've ever spoken about it. But that, actually, I've had actors who've never spoken about it publicly but they're obviously used to communicating things i tried to persuade carrie to let me go on the podcast <laughs> and talk about uh, uh, my my grief i had a tamagotchi that i looked after so carefully mm. for weeks and weeks and weeks jeff thought and this was then, appropriate to say to someone who does a podcast about and then, death. then i went out to dinner one night and i came back and it was dead mm. and i have to say i think this what is, is the tamagotchi it's like oh. a little virtual pet <laughs> you, you have on- the 90s? oh for fuck's Those sake are, yeah. jeff <laughs> Yeah, I thought I handled it beautifully. He's just a sort of man-child, basically. Yes, yes. Well, I think it's why I became such a late-in-life parent, because I felt so guilty about the death of this Tamagotchi for so many years. Yeah, you know what? You want to keep quiet, because social services get winged. You let Tamagotchi die. They might be round here, Jeff. They might have some questions for you. New episodes fairly much every week at the yeah moment. it's weekly at the moment yeah uh, i have an amazing editor called kate holland who allows it to be weekly because i have a baby so you have brought a bunch of ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful what is your first one my other 
fun topic is periods and there is a thing in this country called the tampon tax yes which is still going on yes and there's been lots of campaigning about this and the tampon tax is stuck in a difficult point at the moment because it got reduced from 20 percent to five percent but it can't be reduced to naught percent because of eu rules but then obviously brexit negotiations i doubt tampon tax is going to be at the top of anyone's list so we're kind of stuck at this five percent so there's been some amazing campaigns and um, there's a teenager called amica george who did this amazing campaign that girls that were on free school meals could be given free sanitary products and it hasn't happened so my pitch is that if you disagree with this uh, if you're one of the people who's not putting it forward in any shape or form your job is to clean the pants of the girls on their period <laughs> that's direct it's direct are people actually against it or is it just like this weird technicality there's, to do no with there's you? some politicians who say they shouldn't be given people. when you were working in the treasury yeah, gordon brown was he talking much about periods and sanitary products tampons it wasn't sanitary pants then. and so on Hang on a minute, and now to remember, didn't he legislate for something on this and then didn't announce it because he was too embarrassed to talk about periods? Oh, God, that is Hang so on, sad. What, can somebody just look that up? That's so funny. So it seems like Gordon Brown cut it to 5% but didn't want to mention it. Yeah, he doesn't seem like the type of man who would be terribly comfortable. No. It's become much more like talked about and mm. campaigners like Amica and the amazing charity Bloody Good Period that they supply sanitary products for um, refugees and women on low income. So I feel like... It's much more in ethos than it used to be. Amica's come up with this really sensible solution, which is girls on yeah, yeah. who get free school meals should get it. And there is a fund, I think. I'm taking issue with the fund. They recently revealed that two out of the ten charities benefiting from the fund were, were women's charities. So, yeah. Like, so it's like, so it's a woman. So we're paying for some other charities, which I just feel like. That's not good. Anyway, I just feel like if you are in legislation right now and you're not dealing with this, yeah. here are some pants. Get cleaning. Because okay. I feel like until you've scrubbed off it's menstrual fair, blood... It's a fair challenge. Then you, I don't think you realise how important this okay. is. And I just feel like this is bullshit. This is easier than trade negotiations, surely. That must be true. Yeah. So just, okay. just pass it. We buy it. Great. Great. Let's have it. You're with me. Uh, what's your next one, Carriad? So my next one is a cheeky one in that it's not actually mine, but my husband is obsessed with politics. And when he found out I was doing this, he got... He got cross because he was like, I've got some ideas. Okay. So I hope I'm crazy. What does he do, your husband? He's a filmmaker, oh, right. writer. What's his name? Ben Blaine. Ben, we're listening to you. Okay, so... You're here in spirit. Okay. So you know, like, when you buy food, it will tell you, like, how much, like, fat or sugar or salt is in it, and they have a nice, like, traffic light Definitely. symbol. And it's really easy. We all think that's a great Definitely. idea. Right. So Ben thinks there should be an independent body for fact verification, which would give newspapers the same guide on each article so you could see how much of the article had facts opinion on the in newspaper it, on the article interesting so mm. they'd have to give percentages of facts Percent opinion, of opinion or what's like yeah you know flowery language flowery language being paid for what the editor told them to say so you could look at the article and be like oh that's only that's only 20 percent facts i don't know if i want to consume that it's, traffic it's, light system it yeah. is a good idea i think it would be difficult to police but with algorithms be. these days yeah and he wants to fund it through a tax on internet service providers i tell you he thought it all through he, this is why he was ben very Blaine, clear he yeah. thought it all through he thought it all through and he but says therefore tackling both the threats to journalism you know it's interesting the washington post has a thing where they rate politicians on the number of pinocchios oh. for what they say right, is yeah, it like good. one two three four pinocchios so they have different noses yeah them, right? so oh, i wonder whether great. there's it's sort of slightly a pinocchio system isn't it if articles is too hard you could do it on papers or specific journalists so you could be like this journalist on an average produces 60 percent fact that's quite interesting. Yeah. Ratings like hospital ratings. Yeah. They're all in favour of ratings yeah. for doctors and GPs exactly. and teachers. That's league a... tables. I'm not sure about the league tables. Though. You're very <laughs> quick to jump to the league because then you're you're placing Top of a the value. Pinocchio's chart. But you're placing a value judgment. What we're doing is rather than saying that's necessarily bad, just so you yeah, know, but you don't want to be top. I mean, you don't want to be Manchester City when it comes to <laughs> sort of the number of Pinocchios in your articles, do you? But you just be like, this person produces 60 percent fact. This person produces 20 percent. I think that's mm. a great idea. They're organised. Yeah. Organisations like Full Fact, mm. who could just publish these once a year for the different newspapers and different And then journalists. you could work out like, oh, well, the Daily Mail has this many journalists who produce fact and the Guardian has this but many. But to be fair, politicians, you can have politicians as well. Yeah. Why not? We have to know how much fat and sugar and salt is yeah. in something. And then 
we're told so much right that you should know what you're consuming this is important but like no one places so much value on journalism let's hear it for ben blaine <laughs> it's right. a good idea yeah it's probably the best i've got i'm sorry no, it's <laughs> fine someone else's idea so you're happy with that one yeah yeah definitely definitely okay, and what, what's your other one carrie um, my other one i've been arming and arming over it because every time i come up with it it's, it's a found, safe space this yeah it, it gets a little bit i don't want to be unwelcoming there needs to be better legislation for using the tube Okay, I feel like you need a tube license to use the tube. The people who barge on? The, it, for me, the biggest thing is standing on the left of the escalator. I think it should be made illegal. And if you are caught doing it, if you are a tourist, you're given a, a you know, like a, a yellow, card, yellow card warning. Yeah. So tourists, obviously, because I don't want to say mm. people aren't welcome, yeah. we don't know the rules, but you're given one chance. If you're caught again, you are given a one pound fine. Immediately on the spot, one pound. And then that money is directly used to fund research for air conditioning into the tube. <laughs> that's good. Then everybody benefits. But Carrie, do you, do you know that some studies were done somewhat yes, recently I do, and about they still... the movement of people? Oh, no, And actually one. the uh, on, on escalators and tube stations, and a more efficient way of using the escalators would be to have people standing on both sides than having the lane no, for the fast I... walkers. Oh, time yeah. out here. It wouldn't be very good for the people who want to walk past the people who are standing. You are thinking of the few not the many yet why is that better i don't understand because there have been um, time and motion studies done and uh, the quickest way of getting people out it's not about quick it's about etiquette and understanding so it's not necessarily about fast like you just want these people are choosing to stand these people are choosing to walk what if you know you're in a hurry and you want to walk then the standing will stop you so i'm not saying it has to be fast it's just like these are the rules you need to okay. understand this is what i have a question flow. for you okay. what about the people who sit opposite me mm. and take sneaky photos thinking i'm not going to notice <laughs> <laughs> what's the etiquette well that I don't know if that comes under tube etiquette because that could happen to you anywhere. No, but it's particularly awkward on the tube. I think the best way to is to flush them out. And you say, oh, would you like a picture? They tend to look embarrassed. Yeah, that's fine. But it feels like you've already dealt with that. <laughs> I don't like think, no, I don't. System. It's not very easy to deal with. Most Generally, I think tube, people's tube etiquette is pretty good, actually. Uh, I think the standing on the right, I have I have been known to move people. <laughs> I've been known. Standing to, on the left. Yeah, sorry, standing on the left to do a firm shoulder grab. Wow. And then a shove. No, the the only acceptable thing to do is tut. No, Jeff, that does not get you down the stairs. <laughs> this is where we differ on dealing with strangers. <laughs> I do agree with you. I think tube etiquette is very good, but I think I it, think people aren't very friendly on the tube. Oh, you know what? And that's it, just Jeff. It, dep oh. it depends. It depends what happens. If something happens that's scary, I think a lot of people are very friendly and will give you a look and will be yeah. like we're all in this together. But the tube is a safe space where people don't have to talk to each other. That's a wonderful thing in a city mm. that there is a place we can all go and be very near each other and we don't have to speak. Give us the three rules. Standing on the left. So if, if standing on the left is not allowed, yeah. not moving down when it is busy. Oh, moving down. I, I'm, I don't, I'm amazing at moving down. What if you're yeah. getting off at the next stop and then you're through? I don't through? care. You no. will be let off. Yeah. What do you, have you ever seen anyone not be allowed to okay, miss their stop? Okay, you feel strongly about moving down. Okay. As a small uh, person, when they okay. don't move down, and I can see the middle. I know I can fit in that okay. middle gap. Yeah. Moving yeah. down, thirdly. Um, I would say feet on seats is pretty bad. Feet on seats? That's, feet that's on terrible. Seats. Yeah. 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 But I don't have a problem. I know some people are very anti-eating on the tube. I'm all pro, pro. Eat on the tube. You're a busy person. Eat when you can. I think that's bullshit when people say mm. that. Someone said that's rude to me. I thought, no. you got to eat when you can. It's a busy city. What's the ultimate sentence? Um, if people repeat offenders. Um, oh, you are given a spike touch your bum when you enter the tube and it means you are not allowed to sit down for your whole journey of the tube. Oh my God. I think that's a little bit no, medieval. I think yeah. that's how they're going to learn it. I, think, I mean, you know, all of this sort of sensitivity of the grief cast. I mean, here you are with your advocating kind of medieval, medieval forms of torture. I, was, I, I think you'd rather expose no, yourself here. I said there was no sensitivity in grief. I said there was more about being open about it. Yeah. You know, that's it. You get it out in the open. Let's, let's highlight the people who are not using the Tube properly, but I do understand tourists. They are allowed. They're allowed passes. Because... I'm glad you weren't Queen Carriad the first. I think, it would have been, <laughs> oh, I think the torture me. systems would well, have been pretty. Ed, top monstrous. of my list would not have been photos of you. That right. would have been the first <laughs> thing I'd be dealing with. Particularly not in the Middle Ages. Okay, maybe not a spike. A person come accompanies you, and every time you go to sit down, they say, "No, this person isn't allowed to sit down." They stood on the left. Shaming. That's, yeah, yeah, somebody just walking behind you shouting shame, 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 like a game of yeah, thrones. Yeah, it works for Cersei. Okay, I think I'm with you on the general sort of etiquette thing. Yeah. I'm happy to okay. drop my sort of egocentric bit. <laughs> I, I'm less with you on the medieval torture. Okay, fair. We can work on the, the punishment. Fine. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not a, I'm not good at 
like brainstorm and punishment and good Fair policy. Enough. Good. You are. Yeah. Carry out Griefcast. How many episodes are you up to now? Uh, 43, I think. 43 yeah. So episodes. all types of grief, like whatever you got, come and have anyway, a Anyway, you've got to listen. It's the bestest of the bestest of the bestest podcast. Officially, yeah. Available on Acast, I should say. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Here we are in the outro. Yeah. Why do we love saying we're in the outro? I, don't know, I like the word outro. It's fun, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, not, not to say that we're makes sitting here wishing like, it's all over every makes week. makes me sound almost like I know what I'm doing. Yeah. We should mention that if you're going to Latitude Festival this coming weekend, we are going to be there on Sunday. We are. 3.30 to 4.45 if England aren't in the World Cup final, is my guess. Yeah, and then if, if they are, I'm sure they will accommodate that yeah. somehow. Yeah, or we can sort of show the first half in the second half of our podcast. <laughs> Should we thank our guests? Uh, Greta Byram, who joined us from New York. Francesca Bria, who joined us from Barcelona. And Adam Greenfield, who joined us from Stoke Newington. And the wonderful Carriad Lloyd. And you can download Carriad's podcast, Griefcast, which comes highly recommended. Um, but who needs our recommendation when you've got that many awards? Emma Caution produces our podcast with backup and research from Alex Feisbryce and Lindsay Todd. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the idents. Ed Seed compose the music and the artwork emily power that's emily power with the artwork he's been mr tumble he's been the man that killed the tamagotchi and these have been reasons to be cheerful small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustoleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.